Hello and welcome to At The Source. I'm Alex and this is Karis. This is a podcast about food stories. We love talking about food and eating it. So we wanted to talk to fellow food lovers and record their stories. We're having conversations with everyone from home cooks to food producers and restaurateurs. So why not join us as we explore food in all its glory? Welcome to At The Source. Our guest today is Steph Wetherill. She's passionate about food and social change, and it's all the better she can combine the two. She writes about farmers and producers and is involved with food events like the Abergavenny Food Festival and Bristol Food Connections, and organisations like Bristol Food Producers. I met Steph at a food event and was fascinated by her decision to pack up and move to Canada and change her life. Since recording, Steph has taken on the role of CEO at the Bristol Food Connections event, which is very exciting. Thank you very much for your time and welcome, Steph. Uh, thanks for having me. What is your first food memory? Uh, I guess the most significant first food memory for me is making lasagna with my mum. My mum is someone who makes food en masse, let's just say. So we would take over the whole kitchen, um, have a huge vat of uh, kind of the tomato sauce and the white sauce. And we'd just make like six, seven, eight huge things of lasagna and spend all day doing it. Um, Yeah, that's definitely one of my strongest food memories for sure. That sounds amazing. Was there any connection to lasagna or just like it was just one of those things that you... I think it was just something that my mum used to love making or still loves making, but it's it's kept that on for me. Like, I love lasagna. Some days I'll just wake up and just be like, oh, I'm going to make lasagna and I'll spend like half a day making it and then have loads of friends over and it gets decimated and... 25 minutes and I'm just really happy. So you don't save any for the next day because the rule is that lasagna tastes better the second better day. The well, second day. I'll have to invite less people around. That's the problem. I usually get so excited that I've made so much food that I fill my kitchen. Or make even more lasagna. <laughs> well, I like to make lasagna and then just portion it up. Before it even gets in the freezer, I've already eaten half. Well, I haven't personally, but half of it's already been eaten. Yeah. So I'm a bit like, well, I may as well just eat this stuff tomorrow then. Why bother putting it in the freezer? But yeah, that's just me. So I wanted to talk about Canada. Yeah. Um, one of your blog posts or one of your um, stories on the Locavore that you write, you talk about the four food books that changed your life. And I wanted to know... Did those, and they're quite interesting books too, did those books directly influence your decision to go to Canada in 2013 so that you could learn more about farming and the food system? No, it was kind of, it was almost the other way. So I quit my job and went uh, travelling, but before I left, I decided that I wanted to know more about food. I started to do some reading about it. Um, so one of the books I read, Jonathan Safran Furs, Eating Animals, before I went, and that really affected my relationship with meat, the amount of meat I ate and where it came from. Um, and over the year before I went to Canada, I um, got stopped going to supermarkets and started really engaging more in, in the food I ate, um, which was part of the decision to go and volunteer on farms when I went to Canada. Um, because I wanted to, I was 30 at the time, I didn't want to travel like an 18-year-old. <laughs> I wanted to go and learn something um, along the way. So I I went away for what I thought was a six-month trip to Canada. But the more I volunteered on farms, the more time I spent on farms, the more I learned, the more I realised I wanted to learn. And as I went, people started to lend me books or tell me about books that I should read. Um, so the book that probably changed, that I read whilst farming that changed my life the most was The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan, which I still think is one of the most transformative books about food that you can read because um, it follows three different meals. One from like a uh, very processed fast food meal. He traces all the ingredients back. 
one from an organic meal and then one from a meal he's cooked and kind of kills the animal himself. Wow. And so it's a, it's a really interesting yeah. book that I learned a lot about the food system. And so it was that practical journey of farming and seeing it done firsthand and reading some of those books alongside it that also just gave me the the kind of more in-depth knowledge, wider, I guess, bigger picture knowledge to the food system. And we can definitely put a link to those books in the, the blog post that goes with this as well. So why Canada specifically? Was there a kind of reason? Were there really great farms out there or was it referenced in some of those books or did no. you just fancy it? <laughs> yeah, I wanted to have a big adventure in a big country um, and I knew I just wanted to go to one country and Canada's so diverse and so big and there's some amazing farms. I mean, I went everywhere from like a half acre small holding up to a, I don't know, probably like 1,600 acre ranch. Um, so it was everything in that whole spectrum, uh, which was really fascinating. Um, and I don't think you get such a range in most places. And how long were you there for? I stayed two and a half years in the end. So I did a year of woofing, so volunteering on organic farms. And then I woofing? Learned, woofing. Uh, worldwide opportunities on organic farms. Woofing! <laughs> I love it. Um, and then I landed on a farm and just... Loved the area, loved the people on the farm and stayed for a year and a half. And then it was time to come home. <laughs> and when you did come home, what did you come back to the UK with? Was it, you know, a pound in your pocket and, you know, dreams? Or did you have like a really specific kind of, I want to achieve this in the next, you know, five years? Well, it's kind of funny because I, I before I left, I wrote myself a little mind map of what I wanted out of kind of work and life and I found it recently and I'm doing pretty well it was you know I wanted to be doing more writing I wanted to be doing a job that I really felt like I was good at and contributed and was passionate at I didn't want to work full-time I wanted to do lots of different things and a lot of that's how I ended up have ended up working but most specifically I came back and I knew I didn't want to be a farmer but I knew I wanted to work in local food and farming and I knew I wanted to support farmers and that's the kind of passion I came back with, with pretty much not much more than a pound in my pocket and um, not really an idea of how to make that happen. And I guess I just ended up following that thread and seeing where it turned up. Then you started uh, the Locavore when you got back. Yeah. And that was 2015. And you, you, know, you wrote about your experiences talking to farmers and producers and connecting with the local food chain. How did your love of food writing begin and why did you decide that, you know, the locavore was the way yeah. to go? So I started doing a bit um, of writing about food when I was in Canada. Like I'd done, I dabbled a little bit in writing before I'd gone. But when I was out there, um, where I lived for a year and a half, uh, I started working with a woman out there and getting more involved in the bigger, I guess, the local food scene out there. And she needed somebody to do some writing about some local farms. So that was my first experience of it. And I loved it, like going to visit farms, talking to farmers um, and when I came back while I was looking for a job and while I was working out what I was going to do, I decided I'd start the Locavore, start my website, and just basically set out to go and meet all the people who grew and raised the food that I ate. You know, I came from living on a farm where everything came from the farm, or from people I knew, coming back to Bristol, and I was like, well, how, how do I eat locally in the city, was my question that I kind of came back with, so I set out to find out. I Did really you... like the... Sorry, Caris, totally talked over you there. I really like the this kind of common thread in a lot of the people that we've spoken to where they're following their passion. And yeah. quite often it starts through a hobby. Yeah. So um, although you've been out in Canada and you've been kind of on the ground, kind of experiencing all this stuff yourself, you came home and started writing. And yeah. That's kind of what happened with me because I started my food blog when I was made redundant and 
it led to a job and so yeah. many more opportunities and it's just really nice to hear yeah so there's no question I just thought I'd yeah no <laughs> I just drop that in there because it's really lovely it is and it's I mean I just I just wanted to meet these people mm. but through going and talking to these farmers I got to know other people and it it kind of also got me known yeah in Bristol because there are people who write about restaurants and about food but there was no one else really writing about farmers mm. um and I think it was yeah just when people asked what I do what I was passionate about it's like oh here we go let me let me show you and that was you know the reason to a lot of both the writing work that I've done but also a lot of the other work that I now do so did you answer the question about how you could keep eating locally while living in the city uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> step one, don't go to supermarkets. <laughs> um, I mean, in Bristol, we've got a lot of amazing local shops. There's a lot of farms who do direct-to-customer sales and stuff. Mm. I mean, it takes some effort and some thought. But, you know, I don't think I spend any more money because I don't waste anything. I don't impulse buy anything in supermarkets. I shop from a few local shops. I shop directly from, from some farmers. Um, there's a lot of initiatives out there. Um, and it wasn't nearly as difficult as I thought it was going to be. And it changed my experience of eating. Because now when I eat something, I know the farmer who grew that vegetable, I know the people who make that cheese, I know the person who raised that animal. And that, for me, is my love of food. It's about connection. And it's interesting you say that. Sorry, Alex. I, we both I, just have too many yeah. questions to ask. Okay. <laughs> one, of the, one of the biggest things that I hear when, when people say, oh, I can't eat organic or I can't eat locally because it's more expensive mm-hmm. than, than you know, going to Tesco and paying 50p for you know, yeah. a tin of beans or whatever the case may be. What is your... And I know you said you don't waste and you know, yeah. that's, not everyone is probably as conscientious as you. Yeah. So... What would, what response would you give to someone who said, but uh, but 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 I've got all these excuses? Yeah. Like, I mean, my my thing is that there's there's two sides to every transaction, and there is a certain cost to doing something and doing something well. And so, if you like, you know, there's a cost to rate to growing a bunch of carrots, and if you're not paying that cost, somebody else is paying that price. Either the farmer is getting completely ripped off, or the environment's getting screwed over basically you know that transaction is not just about you mm. and your side of that like I mean a lot of farmers in this country are being put in a terrible position they're in you know not able to afford to live there's a lot of problems around suicide among farmers like there's people not wanting to go into it as a career it's a global problem it's a it? massive global problem and a lot of it is because the prices have been pushed down and I mean I totally accept as well that food poverty is a massive issue and there are people in our um, society who can't afford uh, to to buy a kind of organic and local food, and that is a, that's a kind of a very different topic mm-hmm. because food poverty isn't really about food; it's about poverty. Absolutely. I guess one of the things that because um, I totally agree with you, and I'm of the same mindset. I try and buy as much locally and organically as I can. But I think aside from the the thing that people will say, where oh, it's too expensive. Aside from that excuse, I think one of the others might be about time. Mm. And I think we're quite lucky here in Bristol um, that we have like farm drop and mm. fresh range and, and we can do the online shopping, yeah. like good 60. You know, we can have everything ready for us to go and pick up. Whereas perhaps like in Loughborough, where I'm from, farm drop doesn't exist. Yeah. Fresh range doesn't exist. So if I'm a busy full-time mum, yeah. I haven't necessarily got time to go to the to the fruit and veg shop and to the local butchers and that's hard I yeah think. it is really um, hard and we're in a very privileged situation in Bristol with that because there's so much choice 
Mm-hmm. And this, it's not just like there's one place to get it from. You know, we've got better food, we've got source. And then there's things like, you know, the real economy and food assembly. And like, there's so many different options. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of places, an increasing number of places do have box schemes, for example, with vegetables, which is a great way to get cheaper, organic, well-sourced vegetables. You just have to change the way you think about yeah. vegetables. But there's also a lot of amazing... Uh, farms there's a farm called Piper's Farm for example who deliver across the country right we can put a link to that in yeah yeah and so really well known like really well raised meat that you don't have to be necessarily local to I think that's becoming more possible and more common I mean Riverford as far as like wider scale boxes outside of just Bristol go Mm -hmm. are a great example they work really well with local farmers around the country We'll also link that in the show notes because yeah. Alex actually loves Riverford. So. I do. I do love Riverford. Yeah. Well, let's let's keep to this because I know that we had we've got a list of questions and sometimes <laughs> they, they get you know stretched out of shape a little bit. So, what are some of the ways that you want to see change occur? And I'm I'm thinking small scale so that mm-hmm. anybody who goes I, I do I want to start eating more organic food or I do want to eat more locally. What are some of the things that you can suggest, regardless regardless of whether that's in Bristol or Loughborough or uh, London or Nottingham? Two things for me. So one is seasonality. A huge thing you can do with vegetables is eat more seasonally. Even if you're buying from a supermarket, that will mean that your veg is more likely to be um, UK-based. Just educating yourself a little bit around what what grows at different seasons. Um, And it's all... Great in some ways. No, it's not great to be able to buy asparagus year-round because it comes halfway across the world. Actually, what I really love is enjoying the asparagus season while it's here and supporting the British farmers who grow that. And you can just Google like a seasonal chart just as a, a starter for that. And my other thing is meat. Like I'm a, I am an omnivore, but I'm really particular about where meat comes from and just thinking about that, I guess. it's. I mean, it's a tricky thing. I mean, my experience in Canada changed that for me because I worked on farms that were doing it the best way possible. You know, I I killed a chicken, I uh, skinned a cow and gutted a pig, and when I saw it done well, you suddenly realise how it's done in the industrial food system. And labelling can help in some ways. Like, organic is... If you're buying from a supermarket, organic is better than non-organic, but it doesn't replace um, being able to ask a farmer. So... I mean, one of the articles I wrote um, was about questions to ask your butcher. It's like, so you want to eat better meat. What are actually the issues to know? Um, and kind of go through some of the questions. So it's like, you know, where where does the meat come from? Mm. What what kind of farm? Um, and uh, getting a bit more of an understanding about the issues um, facing each, I guess, each kind of meat. I think we often don't know what we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we'll also link to that article. Yeah. Any other, um, any Plenty other... of things to read. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to have those those pieces of information. It's not just, I think you should do this. Yeah. Here's how you can do it. Here's the step by step wiki how to. Yeah. Um, and we'll we'll make sure that we link yeah. that to you so that you, people can see what it is that you're writing. Just to make that transition to. It doesn't have to be you know tomorrow it, you know slow and steady wins the race yeah totally i mean i think the thing for me right reading jonathan saffron's fur about jonathan saffron fur's book about eating animals that for me was a changing point because i think up until then i was ignorant and after that 
point I realised I couldn't claim ignorance any longer. And he's a vegetarian writing about meat eating. It's a very interesting book. But I think, yeah, I think it doesn't have to be huge leaps like small changes. Even if it's just changing one thing that you eat, that can make a massive difference. Or eating less meat, for example. I eat better. I go for the better meat, but less meat. That's something option. that's really kind of mm. out there at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of eating less meat, but making sure that the meat that you do eat is local, organic. Yeah. Um, certainly in my house, we've cut down the amount of meat we're eating, but you know, I I just love the, all of the meat that you get from um, Better Foods, AD Farm. Yeah. Really nice. I, I've got really into the cheaper cuts of meat. Like my favourite cut of meat right now is Greg and the Lamb. It's like the neck after you've taken the lamb fillets off, and it's super cheap. Like, what do you do with it? Like a uh, casserole? Or? Slow cooker. Oh, amazing. Like, and that's what I do. I buy yeah. you know, the, the less premium cuts of meat, and I stick them in the slow cooker and make something delicious. I think we're almost going back to you know early ni- 20th, 19th century and sort of you know, we, you know, eating seasonally by using up the whole animal and not yeah. just using yeah. all the good bits. Because that's what they were doing. They were getting their half, you know, the village might, you know, all put in for a whole cow to be slaughtered and then everybody uses up every single yeah. bit. And I think I think we lost our way a little bit, didn't we? Yeah. And we really should, you know, we don't necessarily, you know, thankfully we've got better refrigeration yeah. and we've got, you know, Freezers. Yeah. all that kind of thing. But it's amazing what goes thrown away, though. Like, oh, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, I love oxtail as well. And I remember when we lived on the mm. farm and the farmer um, butchered the cow... And I said, oh, can I have the towel? And he's like, yeah, it's over there. <laughs> Sling it over your shoulder. <laughs> Basically, yeah. But it was, a, it was an excellent lesson. And, um, you know, I fed six people off it. That's mm. incredible. <laughs> it's just this whole supermarket. And I don't want... We do want to ask you some questions about Abu Ghani Food Festival. But this whole um, supermarket kind of prepackaged little pink portions of unidentifiable meat. And mm. I do feel like Harris is right it feels like we're coming full circle, you know, like talking to um, Martha Roberts, who's a a, a pig breeder, um, smallholder in Wales and, you know, similar themes coming out and also um, talking to Liz from Forage Fine Foods about the kind of the influence that she got from speaking to older generations that that foraging was something that just happened here and seasonality and and it's lost and well I think we've just lost a connection with our food we used to go into a supermarket and you pick something up and it doesn't look like an animal and then you get a vegetable and it's wrapped in plastic and but you have no idea where any of that comes from we've lost knowing our farmers and I think that for me is is the main thing it's about that connection it's like it's knowing where my food comes from is really important to me and knowing that I'm supporting those people and it makes me want to pay more for food when I know who I'm buying it from. But do you feel like it is starting to turn or is that just because of the, the people that we... The way <laughs> are we, that we in a bubble? <laughs> are we in a bubble? That's my question because, you know, we, we, we wanted to talk to you because we're interested in and believe in what you're doing and yeah. the same with Martha and the same with Liz and everyone else but perhaps that's because we are also in that bubble. Is it turning? It, I, I think it, it is. It's becoming a, a bigger thing. And the more that people like us try and push what people like Steph are trying to achieve or what, you know, Martha's trying to achieve and bring that to a wider audience. Because like I said to to James Wetlaw talking about GOAT, I think people feel like they can't do things because it's out of their price range. Like if they're living pay to pay every month and they literally... Mm 
you know, again, food poverty and, and people who just don't know where to start. I think if we can start by helping them realise, actually, it's not that hard. It's not as hard as you think it is because sometimes it looks bigger than it really is. And just by breaking it down and going, you don't have to go all organic tomorrow. Yeah. But go to the butcher instead of Tesco or, you know, you know, go once to your local week. farmer once a week. You know, it's Buy just organic yeah. milk instead of softly, yeah. softly catchy monkey. Or go to yes, a bakery and mm. buy bread from there rather than the supermarket. But yes. again, we are really fortunate to live in Bristol. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that it's not as easy. as easy as well, yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah. What would be the one myth, I guess, that you would bust about? you know eating locally or you know the thing that you hear the most that you go oh why do people think that i just want them to know this one thing oh that's, oh, that's a really good question <laughs> that's a really hard yeah. question um that's what we're here for Paris, you're like hard-hitting journey <laughs> i know <laughs> uh the one myth i think the thing that frustrates me so the you know the vegan question is a really big thing at the moment and about eating meat and that eating meat isn't sustainable i think is the myth that i struggle with because i think it's it is if we eat less meat, for sure, and if we eat the right kind of meat. Like, beef gets lumped into a, a big bad box for its uh, climate change impacts. Um, but actually, there's a massive difference between an industrially raised cow and a pasture-fed cow. And the kind of impact on the land, the biodiversity, all of the amazing things that well-done grazing can do. You know, it can bring land back from the dead, it can, you know, carbon capture all of that stuff and I think it's realizing that meat isn't just meat it's probably my uh, my biggest thing That's that there's a spectrum that the meat you eat really affects the impact of it mm-hmm. And I think that kind of almost brings us to the Abergavenny Food Festival yeah. which you've been involved with because that's one of the messages that each year it's all of the things that you've been saying mm-hmm. connecting people with food yeah you were involved this year and you you organised the speakers and the, and the programme. Yeah. What was one of your takeaways from that? So I love Abergavenny because it was started by farmers and it's managed to keep that ethos in amongst the kind of foodie side of it. Um, I think my takeaway from it this year and seeing what was popular is that there's a real... There, there are people who really want to learn, want to know more. Like the we've been doing a series of vertical tastings this year, which mm. are in aimed to be a practical way to for people to really engage in stuff. So there was a mutton tasting, a goat tasting, a, you know, a beef tasting where we tasted uh, steaks from, like, different aged cows. And I think there's a real appetite. I think there's a massive appetite for people to learn more and to engage more. Um, yes, people want to go to the fun events, but actually there's also a huge, an increasing number of people who, who really want to understand the food that they eat and want to re-engage with it. I guess, in a way that has potentially been lost over the last kind of couple of decades. I think that you, first of all, did a, an amazing job. Um, the programme is great. It's I no mean, secret. It's, it's that, great every year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was going to say, it's no secret that Karis and I are like huge Abergavenny <laughs> fans. But this year in particular, you know, we we went to quite, a, we came for both days. Um, mm-hmm. We sound like a couple, Karis. <laughs> uh, we have a shared calendar, you know. <laughs> we basically are. Um, <laughs> we went to quite a few of the talks um, given by farmers and yeah. producers. And actually, do you know how refreshing it is to go to a food festival and not just watch another celebrity chef plugging mm. their book that's going to cover their Christmas cruise? You know, yeah, absolutely. Um, it is, and there were people there watching these talks yeah. in the drizzle, sat on a haystack with kids, older people, people our age, families. It was 
such a broad audience and you're right everyone was listening and everyone wanted to learn and yeah it's well more done. <laughs> it's more than just it's more than just a kind of food festival in many it's ways brilliant. and I think I think it's a real testament to Anya as well and her kind of guidance and leadership on that over the last couple of years um I think she's incredibly gifted at taking a lot of those messages to a wider audience so it doesn't you know the the good food movement can often get stuck in the organic sustainability mm. uh box yeah. and I think being able to talk outside of that to that wider audience um is really key Last question before we wrap things up. Can you tell us a little bit about the Bristol Food Producers? Okay, yes. So um, it was started a few about three years ago uh, by a bunch of uh, farmers, producers, retailers, restaurants, distributors who recognise that there's lots of amazing things happening in Bristol in terms of increasing local food production, but there's not nobody has the capacity to link it up because everyone's too busy doing their bits. So Bristol Food Producers was created as a network to try to to kind of provide some of those connections, those contacts, um, and do some more of the strategic work. So I've been coordinating it for the last couple of years. So I spend a lot of time drinking tea with farmers, um, talking to restaurants about where their food comes from, and really trying to make those connections, I guess. And trying to... I'm a bit like a support worker for farmers. <laughs> Whatever they need, that's kind of my job to try and make that happen. Are there other types of organisations <coughs> like this around the country? Um, um, yeah, there's a few. There's... Up in Manchester, there's the Kindling Trust. Um, there's a few in London, organically, and growing communities who are a bit different. Um, and then there's one called Tamar Grow Local. Um, I think there's some stuff going on in Oxford. Um, but it's, it's relatively, you know, relatively recent, and we're really early on on the uh, journey as well. It's quite a, quite a long way to go. Um, but it's interesting and exciting. So so is all of it. Yeah. <laughs> Again, and I feel like this is becoming a running theme, and I think that's a good thing, that every time we get to the end of our time and we go... Oh, I wish we had more time. We're going to have to start doing like extended edition, like that we can do as a yeah, <laughs> an extra add-on. But then you know you're going to offend people if you if they're not selected for the extended <laughs> yes, edition. That's true. <laughs> but to, to, to <laughs> be honest, I don't think we've spoken to one person yet that we haven't wanted to keep asking yeah. and asking and asking. We really haven't. It's because uh, we just we just pick all the best people. Yep. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Steph. It's Pleasure. been amazing talking to you. It's been really good getting an insight into what you do and you know how you how passionate you are about mm. farmers and producers and eating locally. We will have some show notes for listeners, so we'll link back to Steph's uh, blog uh, and some of the other things that she's mentioned that we've talked about. So many useful things. We'll also dig out the details for the um, the, the Oxford, the Manchester, the Tamar, yeah. the equivalents of the Bristol food producers for our non-Bristol yeah. listeners out there. And I guess that's about it, isn't it, Kairos? Thank you very much for listening. And if you enjoyed this, we would love it if you could give us five stars on iTunes because it helps more people find At The Source. And find awesome people like Steph. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much. Until next time. Over and out.